Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week we are rebroadcasting an interview with Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America and author of the book Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. I read a lot of books about democracy for this show, and Lee's is one of my favorites. It is the perfect combination of political science and political reform that I think is at the heart of what we try to do here on Democracy Works. If you like this interview, you can hear more from Lee this Wednesday, July 7th, 2021, at an event that our podcast network, The Democracy Group, is organizing. I'll be talking with Lee and several other hosts from the network about the question of whether the crises facing democracy are really just a failure of imagination. It should be a fascinating discussion, and I'm really looking forward to the events. I hope you'll be able to join us live on Wednesday or maybe catch the recording after the fact. You can learn more and register at democracygroup.org. Again, that's democracygroup.org. And now here's the episode with Lee Drutman from June 2020. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy around the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are going to talk about political parties, which is something that we have touched on several times this year so far, first with Francis Lee and then David Carroll talking about the the various roles that the parties play in terms of how we think about Congress and elections and all sorts of things. But this week's guest has has a bit of a different take. Our guest is Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America and author of a new book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. Also, one of the hosts of the Politics in Question podcast, which is part of our podcast network. But Lee makes some really interesting arguments, as the the title of his book makes pretty clear about why our current system just is no longer viable. Right, exactly. He's arguing that we need more political parties. And he's arguing, I think, in a way that to me goes back also to Frances Lee and arguments that she was making and others that within our constitutional system, having highly polarized parties is very problematic. In a system of shared powers, such as that we have, where you need to have all institutions aligned, you really need to have parties that have some crossover among them in order to build coalitions around certain kinds of issues. Sure. Instead, what we have is one highly polarized party takes control of one institution, another highly polarized party takes hold of another institution and you end up with a sort of gridlock situation, especially when they're as competitive as they are today. As Charlie Dent put it so well, it's a separation of parties on a separation of powers. Exactly. He and and, and Drutman is picking up on that, I I think, quite appropriately and, and interestingly. Well, but I think there's a lot more going on here than just inefficiency. I mean, the argument about why two parties are bad is as old a theme in Western political science as there is, right? I mean, it's why the Roman Republic fell. If you have two competing parties 
And that split becomes the only orienting phenomenon in a society, then that society is on a path to civil war. And when the only time in American history where that has happened up to this point was around the issue of slavery, and that's exactly what happened. And that's one of the reasons why the founders were so nervous about parties, because they knew what happened to Rome. And they knew what happened frequently when you had a society in which these various interests coalesced around two competing and overwhelming tribes. Yeah, and two such highly polarized ones. I mean, the thing about, say, going back to before parties were so highly polarized, so what, back to the 1960s or something, and you really had, in effect, four parties because you had conservatives within the Democratic Party and you had liberals within the Republican Party. You didn't have the kind of strict two-party separation that you have now. No, I think Lee says that exact point in his book. And actually, I mean, Michael, you should probably talk about this. The American Political Science Association in the 50s actually put out a document saying the amalgam of ideology within both parties is bad, right? Right. uh, Towards a responsible two-party system. Because, you know, there's an argument called the responsible party theory. And the responsible party theory basically says that for a democracy to operate well, You need to have parties that are clear in their goals and orientation so that people know what they're voting for. Right. And that they can then blame or reward the party in power, depending on circumstances. And that when you have parties that are so muddled as they were when this was written in what, Mm -hmm. the 1950s or 1960s. Eisenhower wanted to run in both parties. Right. Right. So when you have party, they're they're saying that it's very difficult to have that kind of accountability. And of course, this is what allowed a demagogue like George Wallace to argue there's not a dime's worth of difference between the parties and to create openings for somebody like him. It's interesting, isn't it, that George Wallace was the one who called out these kind of mushy parties that don't really articulate any difference. And then the moment that led to the dissolution of this was the civil rights era, right? And and where you kind of chased out the Southern Democrats, the Dixiecrats, and eventually you lost the New England liberal Republicans as well. Yeah. So we often argue, and, and I hear this a bit here, that, you know, oh, there's no role for these minor parties because within the kind of representation system that we have within Congress of single member districts and not proportional representation, it is very, very hard, maybe even impossible for minor parties to take hold within government. But that doesn't mean they haven't been influential in the American political system. That would be wrong. They've actually been quite influential in how they've uh, influenced both political parties, which have had to absorb these parties. You know, the Democratic Party, which is now supporting a Green New Deal, has pretty much taken the agenda of the Green Party, which wasn't all that powerful when it existed. Maybe it still does. But that environmental movement has sort of found itself within the Democratic Party. And so now we are where we are. And Lee Drutman says the only way to stop this cycle, this back and forth, downward spiral, doom loop, is to create the possibilities for many parties within the United States government. Or yeah, well, that's United an States. excellent point. That's an excellent time to lead into the interview. And let's return to that after we hear from him. 
So Lee has an interesting perspective. He has one foot in political science. He is a political scientist by training, but he also is one part democracy reformer in his role at, at New America. And I think it's really interesting to hear how those two things intermix. So let's go now to my interview with Lee Drutman. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Lee Drutman. Lee, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. Hey, it's a great pleasure to be with you, Jenna. So uh, I'm excited to talk with you uh, all about your book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, and the the case you make for multi-party democracy in America. It was um, good to see you reference the founders and the Federalist Papers. We love a good Federalist Papers reference on this <laughs> show. Um, but, you know, you, as you say, uh, this this notion of a, of a problematic two-party system is something that the founders were concerned about. The idea of faction comes up a lot. And it seems, if I'm understanding correctly, that they thought that the answer to faction was was more faction or, or having more parties than we have today. Uh, that's right. So in Federalist Number 10, Madison is wrestling with this very hard question, which is, what do you do uh, in a society in which there are lots of different factions and lots of different interests, which is basically every society? And he's concerned because he doesn't want the country to be torn apart, but he also recognizes that you can't suppress factions from expressing themselves because that would be the end of liberty. So Madison was fond of religious liberty. That was his first cause. And he was fond of a saying from Voltaire, which I'll I'll paraphrase, which is that one religion would be arbitrary. Two religions means that everybody would try to cut each other's throat over what happens after you cut each other's throat. And many religions and people can live in peace. And so the the logic of Federalist Number 10, which is, I think, the overriding logic of our political system, is that the key to political stability is having enough factions that no one faction ever sees itself as potentially dominant, and no one faction ever fears that it will be the dominated faction. The framers were worried about parties, but when they were worried about parties, they were really worried about two parties and really geographical parties because they thought that would run the risk of civil war because uh, you'd have one majority party and one minority party. The minority party would feel like it had no ability to use the political process legitimately, and you would descend into authoritarianism and violence. And I think they got that part right. The part that they got wrong was that you could prevent parties from forming entirely, uh, as we now know, and as a well-accepted tenet of political science, is that political parties are the essential institutions for mass democracy to work, because without political parties, politics becomes chaotic and ultimately despotic. And you know, I think the Constitution was written with the idea that there would be no political parties. Uh, that was obviously wrong. The other mistake, and maybe this is not a mistake as much as a problem of, of doing this at the wrong time, was that there was only one system of elections available that anybody had, had known, which was whoever gets the most votes wins, the plurality first past the post system of elections that tends to generate just two parties. Various forms of proportional representation wouldn't be invented 
until uh, the early 19th century, wouldn't be in use until the early 20th century. And I do think that if uh, framers had acknowledged that political parties are essential to mass democracy and had understood the way in which electoral rules uh, affect the number of parties, they would have wanted something akin to a proportional representational system of elections. I think you you just described some of what you say in the book is that two-party doom loop. And there's a great figure in the book. You managed to kind of sum it all up in a nice little circle chart that I hope people will see when they read the book. But can you kind of walk us through what that doom loop entails? So the doom loop is an escalating process of hyper-partisanship. And what has happened, and I think this is actually something new and unique in our political history is that America has become a genuine two-party system in that there's no overlap between the two parties. There used to be quite a bit of overlap between the two parties, but all that basically collapsed by, I would say, about 2010. And what we have is two parties that are both coalitions, but they're non-overlapping coalition, and they represent very different geographies, very different values. And they're in about equal balance when it comes to representation in Washington. And so control of power is tightly fought, incredibly high stakes, and Democrats and Republicans live very separately from each other and subscribe to very separate news medias, very separate values, very separate ideas, even different versions of the truth, different senses of of what is even fair in politics. And this difference between the two parties and the two sides creates higher stakes in politics, which makes compromise even more untenable, which creates frustration and which further escalates the stakes of every election and further drives the two sides apart until there's no sense of shared fairness or legitimacy. And and I I think this is a a real danger uh, as we approach the 2020 election. What if it's close? Will both sides accept an outcome where one wins and one loses? Democracy fundamentally depends on a sense of shared fairness. And with each election, we've ratcheted up the stakes and we've ratcheted up the demonization of the other side. Uh, Yeah. And you also talk about one of the reasons that we found ourselves in this place was going back to the 1950s, kind of the post-World War II period. The parties actually were maybe too similar. You describe a bipartisan love fest as, as, as I believe your term. Or I stole that term from someone else who, a journalist at the time, I believe, yeah. who, who called what was going on in Washington a bipartisan love fest. 1950, uh, the American Political Science Association put out a very famous report towards a more responsible two-party system in which they criticized the party system of the time as being basically too incoherent and indistinct that the two parties were these conjuries of local and state parties that didn't really have any coherent national program. And and there was very little that distinguished the two parties. And the authors of the study thought, well, that's not really democracy because if voters don't have a clear choice and can't send one party to run the country and then hold that party accountable based on a set of programs and priorities, then voters are really 
powerless in our system. And uh, they wanted something more akin to the British parliamentary system in which the party that wins the election gets total control so that voters could then hold that party accountable and make uh, meaningful votes. I think at the time, the parties were so incoherent and overlapping and really non-ideological that the authors of that report thought that the idea of an ideological cleavage like the one we see today would just be inconceivable. Obviously, they were wrong about that. But I mean, I do think they were right about the idea that voters should have clear choices and be able to send a clear signal as to the priorities and policies that they want. But I think the problem is when you do it in a two-party system, you wind up with choices that are too clear and too high stakes and most importantly, too binary that you know, pushes us into this us against them thinking this black versus white, good versus evil, and all of these Manichaean dichotomies that frankly drive us all crazy. What are some of the other countries you think that we could or should look to for examples of a better way for the U.S. system to work, ways that we can break out of the doom loop you describe? Well, I think we should look to similar Anglo countries that have versions of multi-party systems and proportional representation, New Zealand, Ireland, Australia. Those are all consistently high-functioning, high-performing democracies. Ireland and Australia use various forms of ranked choice voting, which is something that has been catching on a bit here in the U.S., I, I think. It's a tremendous improvement. And there's both a single winner ranked choice voting and a multi-winner ranked choice voting. The multi-winner ranked choice voting is used in Ireland to elect the doll. And they just had a recent election there and in Australia to elect the Senate. Uh, I think we could have multi-member districts with ranked choice voting for House elections and ranked choice voting would have to be the single member districts for the Senate. And I think that would move us towards a multi-party system. I think a few things that would accelerate that would be getting rid of primaries for congressional elections and also expanding the size of the House. And ultimately, I think we'd want to move to a presidential election system that uses either ranked choice voting or a two-round system at a national election. That would obviously require a constitutional amendment, which is why I don't emphasize it too much in the book, because what I'm trying to do in, that, in the book is work within the existing constitution. Uh, I also think that states uh, across the country can pass reforms and change the way they elect their own state legislatures. And I do want to emphasize that there's nothing inherent in the American constitution or political system that expects a two-party system. The Constitution, the Elections Clause, Article 1, Section 4, says it's up to states to decide how they want to run their elections, and Congress can intervene. There's nothing that requires first-past-the-post plurality elections. And you know, I think the natural fit for American political institutions is a multi-party system, because a multi-party system is really a system of compromise and coalition building. Sure. So a couple things to unpack there. I just want to make sure that, that everyone is is clear on. Um, you mentioned single member and multi-member districts. Can you just explain a little bit more about what that might look like or, or how that might work? Sure. Right now we have single member districts, which is that when you vote for a member of Congress uh, every other November, you're electing one member of Congress to represent your district. Well, there are some countries that do this, but uh, more common across advanced democracies and even within some states is to elect multiple representatives to represent a district. And that 
would give us a form of proportional representation if you add ranked choice voting or some limited vote method where you only get one vote, even if it's transferable as it would be under ranked choice voting, because it means that you wouldn't need to get a plurality or a majority of votes to win that seat, but you could win it with 17%, which means that third parties, fourth parties are no longer considered spoilers. But, you know, if, say, 17% of people want a libertarian or a green or some other party that would probably form, they could elect that person. And I think what you would see if you adopted this, I think, with five-member districts instead of single-member districts, so combining five districts into one and electing five representatives, you'd probably see a, see four or five parties uh, in the U.S. because you'd see the Democratic Party split probably into two, a social Democratic Party and a more moderate Democratic Party. Sure. No, that's that's super helpful. And I, I think you also, in the, in the course of that answer, maybe clarified something else that I had been struggling to, to tie together in, in my own mind, which was the link between ranked choice voting and multiple parties. But if I'm understanding correctly, tell me if, if this is right. Rather than currently, uh, you know, Maine is using ranked choice voting, but anyone who would vote for a third party candidate, that their votes would just kind of get recycled back to one of the two major parties in our current configuration. But if there was a multi-party system, those votes could stick with the third party or there would be some proportional allocation of those votes as opposed to them just being shuffled over to one of the two major parties that we currently have. That is a great summary, Jenna. Thank okay. you. Um, the other thing that I have been thinking about is, you know, some of the, the countries you mentioned, Australia and, and Ireland, thinking about their media systems, they have a, a stronger form of state-backed media than we currently do here in, in the U.S. And so you know, I'm wondering if that's something that you kind of took into consideration as, as you were thinking about some of these things. Is it possible that we would end up with four media sources, five media sources, one for each of those parties you were just describing? Or you know, what would even be necessary to make sure that voters were informed enough about all of the different party options that might be out there? I thought a lot about the role of the media in writing this book. And ultimately, what I found convincing was that the media is not the cause of our polarization, but rather a consequence and accelerator of our polarization. The media has become quite binary in the United States. The liberals and Democrats follow one stream of news. Republicans and conservatives follow another stream of news. But I think that we'd actually be better off if there were five or six or maybe 20 streams of news. And I know there are folks who say, well, that would be incredible fracture. But I think what you would see is that people would be sampling from more different streams if there were more different streams. And there's an interesting study that I came across uh, that looked at Twitter networks across advanced democracies. And the Twitter network in the US is very binary. There are just two really unconnected clusters, similar in the UK, which basically has a two-party system. But in multi-party systems, Twitter networks look much more like a spider web with different people following streams related to different parties. And what that means is that people are getting more different streams of information and are probably less certain about what to believe, which is actually a good thing. Some uncertainty is really important. I think the problem with our media stream is that it feeds on so much certainty because when there's only two sides, our brains 
kind of snap into this very us versus them Manichaean binary, which really simplifies things. And it's very hard to consider the other side because the other side seems so far away on every dimension. Whereas in a multi-party system, there might be you know, a lot of different streams of information, but there's considerable overlap. So you can be a little curious about what other parties and media affiliated with those parties are thinking. And you might find that you have some overlap and they have some good points and some points you disagree with. People are more open to new ideas when there are more different ideas to consider. And to consider a different idea doesn't negate your whole identity. I've often thought that democracy reform needs a project manager. So there's all these interests out there kind of competing. And, you know, in some sense, when everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. So I, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on like a, a logical order or sequence to kind of put these reforms in to feasibly start to make them happen. Well, to me, electoral reform is the key reform changing how we vote. And you know, I think the problem of gerrymandering is a problem only if you have single member districts with two parties, because when you have single member districts and predictable partisan voting, you can plug all that data into a computer algorithm and spit out 10,000 different scenarios and pick the one that maximizes your party's share in the legislature. The logic of gerrymandering completely falls apart when you have multi-member districts with ranked choice voting. It's no longer profitable. It's so hard to game that out. So that would solve the problem of gerrymandering in one fell swoop. The money in politics question is a really hard question to solve, given the way the Supreme Court has constrained regulation. And given the fact that whichever party is in power sees a tremendous advantage from keeping the existing campaign finance system, I do think that the shift to small donor dollars via the internet and via portals like Act Blue may be changing the dynamics a little bit. But I do think that one of the things that keeps campaign finance reform from passing is that uh, our system is is so gridlocked that nothing passes. And I think by changing the incentives of our political system and our, the incentives, I just want to spell this out, are that whichever party is in the minority is going to block everything that the majority does. And especially if the majority is the president, because the goal is always to be the majority. And the way you get to be the majority is you draw a sharp distinction and say that the other side is extreme and evil and they can't get anything done. And by not compromising, you make sure they don't get anything done. And by not compromising, you send a signal that they're evil because you can't compromise with evil. But that logic and that incentive structure only works when you're trying to get a narrow majority. In a multi-party system, no one party is going to get a majority, so it's not going to try to dominate the other side. Instead, it's going to build coalitions, particularly if you have ranked choice voting, which really encourages coalition building on the electoral side. Then suddenly you can get stuff done. There are a lot of issues which 60, 70 percent of Americans say, we want to get this issue done. But those issues become partisan issues once they get to Congress because one side wants to use it as an issue and the other side doesn't want to use it as an issue. The other side wants to use a different issue. 
And if you want to use an issue as an electoral issue, then you don't want to see it resolved. And that's the logic that we're in. And until we change that underlying logic by changing the electoral rules and the incentives, we're going to continue to have a dysfunctional Congress and a dysfunctional government. I mean, you really need to kind of make the case to those who are in power that yeah, this is really in your interest to make some of these changes, which is just not an, an easy sell. What do you think if you had to make that case? What is that case that you would make? And is there anyone that you see in Congress or, or in other parts of government today who might be a good ally or, or someone who can maybe start to move the needle on some of these things? I think the pitch to sitting members of Congress is that they know better than anyone how dysfunctional the system is, and they don't like it any more than, than we all do. Talk to any member of Congress, especially any retiring member of Congress, and they'll talk about how dysfunctional the place is. It's not a mystery. I think the challenge is that they are scared of changing the system because they don't know how they would operate in a different system. But I think at this point, it should be a gamble worth taking. And I think there are a lot of members of Congress who come to Washington and really want to do problem solving. And then they realize that the system is not set up for it. And I think a lot of members of Congress would frankly enjoy serving in a multi-party Congress a lot more than they do being partisan warriors in the trench warfare of the current Congress. So there, there's certainly a growing interest in Congress. And you know, in the states, Maine became the first state to pass ranked choice voting and use it in the 2018 election. They'll use it again in 2020, including for the presidential election. There's some efforts in Alaska and North Dakota it's catching on. There's a, a local options bill in Virginia and in Utah. A number of cities are adopting it. New York City is going to use it in its primaries. Uh, so it's certainly catching on. I think there are a lot of folks who recognize that the way that we vote is just terrible. It, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and most of the world has moved on from the 1430 innovation of first past the post voting. And uh, yeah, it's time that we catch up. Sure. Uh, you know, the other thing that I think maybe might scare some people when you when you think about adding more parties to our system, you know, people on the left might think, oh, we're going to end up with some kind of neo-Nazi party. People on the right might think, oh, we're going to end up with this like crazy left wing socialist party. And so that kind of maybe prevents further action. People are just kind of paralyzed because, as you said, there's that fear of the unknown. Do you think that is something to be at all concerned about as we consider what a multi-party system might look like? Well, this is a classic scaremongering technique that uh, proportional representation gave us the Nazi party in Germany, therefore proportional representation is bad. That's just a fundamental misreading of history. You can look across European democracies today and you can see that there are far-right parties that are certainly rising, you know, getting 15, 20% in some elections. But the thing about a multi-party system is that it's very hard for a minority to rule. And what you've seen time and time again across Western democracies is that those parties at 20% are easily marginalized 
because 80% of the country has rejected them or 75% of the country has rejected them. And you can form different governing coalitions that exclude those extreme parties. Or occasionally you can have a compromised government with them in which they're a junior partner and they often lose their sting once they get into government because their support is fundamentally based on a rejection of the existing power structure. Now, in a plurality election system like ours, it's very easy for a minority to rule. Because all you have to do is be a plurality of a plurality, and suddenly you're the majority. Donald Trump won the Republican primary with about 30% of Republican voters supporting him. Republican Party is probably 40% of people, if you include leaners, support the Republican Party. So Donald Trump is really a 12% party, what he stands for. And that's consistent with far-right parties uh, throughout Western Europe. But because he was the plurality of a plurality, and because we have a hyper-partisan polarized system, he took over the Republican Party and defined the Republican Party and shifted the Republican Party. So we have a far-right populist government in the U.S. that is oh, far to the right. If you compare parties and manifestos and stances, the Republican Party under Trump is you know, about as far-right as most of the far-right parties in Europe so if that's the scare technique against proportional representation, it seems like an even bigger problem with uh, our first past the post two party system. What can listeners, if they've been hearing this conversation and they're like, yes, I agree, I want to get involved, I want to help break out of the two party doom loop, what would you suggest that they do as some next steps? I would start locally. Democracy reform almost always in the U.S. starts from the bottom up. If you live in a city, you can support reform efforts in your city. If you want to get involved at the state level, it's a lot easier to make reform at the state level. And eventually the government in Washington and Congress will follow as states and cities lead. So I think there's plenty of opportunities to get involved at the local level. And if anybody wants to get involved at the local level, they should look me up on the internet and uh, reach out to me. Okay. Yeah. We'll definitely link to your Twitter and your, your bio and, and, and all of that stuff. So I guess given how like entrenched things are, I mean that you, you still think that local bottom up type of scaling is still feasible today? I think it is. And I think that's where it has to start. Given how stuck things are in Washington, members of Congress if they see a groundswell of support for electoral reform and uh, it looks like it's working, they'll be much more excited to introduce and lead when there's a little bit of momentum. Right. Well, Lee, thank you so much for your work on this book. In some ways, it helped me categorize or kind of think about every other conversation we've had on this podcast for the two years we've been doing it. It kind of tied all the loose ends together uh, very nicely. So thank you for your work and thank you for talking with us today. Well, that is one of the nicest compliments I've received. So thank you, Jenna. Really good stuff, and it's a good book. It's worth your time. It's an Talk important argument. So he says in the book that he uses poverty 
as an example of a doom loop, right? And so you're behind on your bills, so you only pay one bill a month, and then the next month you got a late fee on top of that, and so then you have to get rid of your car because you can't afford it anymore, and then you're late for your job and you lose your job. And everybody can understand what that means, right? And what he's arguing is that when you have two antithetical parties, the kind of tit-for-tat response to growing animosity just leads to this, at best, an inefficient government. And at worst, it sets the table for violence and civil war. Yeah. I mean, especially when you accompany it with the erosion of norms that we've right. talked about. In but, the he, but he says that that's the almost an inevitable, right? That's yeah. part of the loop is that you are going to get people who are not going to treat each other with respect. And so that's part of uh, this cycle down. But so he argues that the only way out of this is by changing the institutional structures by creating the possibility for what is already extant within American society, which are these different kind of parties. And so it's worth talking maybe about what he says, what those parties would look like right now, right? If you could just snap a finger and say, now there are multiple parties, what does he say those are? I think it's pretty clear to any of us who observe, right? We'd have with right. the Republican Party would would sort of uh, the the coalition that elected Trump would break apart. So the Mm -hmm. nationalist wing of the party represented by Trump, the evangelical wing of the party uh, represented by, I don't know, a bunch of other people. Well, I think that most of the evangelicals would go with Trump because they certainly have now. But So I guess, sure. So you could have a nationalist evangelical wing and then you'd have a more of a free market, free trade kind of deregulatory wing of the party. Yeah, the Paul Ryan wing of the party. The Democrats have always been a coalition of disparate interests. And of course, as, as any major party would have to be. I'm, I'm not quite sure how the Democratic Party would break up. But, you know, I'm willing to accept Lee's argument that there'd be a maybe a socialist kind of party mm-hmm. that would mm-hmm. develop in the way that socialism is being used in the American context. Mm-hmm. It's not true socialism, but democratic social socialism. Democratic, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, more of a uh, party. I, I don't know how you define a party as just moderate, but more mainstream democratic party. I, I suppose all that's possible, but I mean, without major structural change within how we run elections and how we allocate legislative seats, I don't don't see it happening. I've heard you make this argument that your concern is that there's a danger there, right? That some of those parties are radical, racist, and willing to undermine the rights of other Americans with whom they disagree. Well, I mean, one way to think about it is just because of, and this goes back to how democracies die, which we talk about a lot, that (laughs) parties play a gatekeeping role. And so while the two major parties are probably, not always, but probably going to play a gatekeeping role in keeping the more extreme elements from becoming candidates, these smaller fringe parties will have no incentive to do that. And and so then they're going to be making demands that they can really push if they are essential to forming the coalition. A party that has 10% of the seats, if they're needed to give a bigger party 51% of the seats, that's a lot of power. That's disproportional power. But I want to get to what I take to be, for me, the most difficult part of the book, which is his argument for why this is possible, 
why these kind of institutional changes are possible. And I don't think they are. I mean, I think that when you have a party, i.e. the Republicans, that is so oriented around preservation of the status quo and that their coalition is diminishing before their eyes, right? White, old rural people as a percentage of the United States of America, every one of those groups is declining. What you're talking about is sort of large scale structural change, which probably requires in this context, one party control of the of the system. Perhaps. And then, and then party, why do they have an incentive to change it when they have one party control? Well, a good point. Politics is about building coalitions and you have to start locally. And in their defense, the people who are pushing for ranked choice voting are doing exactly that. And if you create enough of a groundswell locally, then that can potentially change the calculation of self-interest on the part of politicians in general or one party in particular. And so I think that is the takeaway here, is if you think politics is broken and you think a multi-party system is the only way to solve it, then you are a fool if you don't start working in your own backyard to try to change things locally. Yeah, I mean, the ranked choice voting I I see is a part of it. But to me, the key part here is the proportional representation in a multi-member districts. He obviously says that without both, it's a waste of time. Yeah, but let's keep in mind that multi-candidate districts were largely Mm -hmm. eliminated in the U.S. because of the role they played in suppressing black representation, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is why you need the ranked choice voting with it. Because if everybody was just voting for their top choice, you'd end up with, in a district, to give an idea of this, let's say you had five members coming out of one district, okay? And that district was 40% black and 60% white. You could end up with five white representatives if everybody's just voting for their top choice and zero black representatives. And in fact, this is why many states at the requirement of the Supreme Court had to eliminate their Mm -hmm, mm multi-member districts. mm -hmm. So you do need to have the two together in order for this to work. So I think this is a heavy lift and he knows that and acknowledges all the problems. Right. But it's his job to put these ideas out. Exactly. Absolutely. It's, It's so challenging and engaging and he's a good writer too. So thanks to uh, Lee Dretman. Thanks to Jenna Spinelli for a great interview. And thank you to you all for listening. I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Michael Berkman. And this has been Democracy Works. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson. Edited by Chris Kugler, Jen Bortz, and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, two seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts all about civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and access deep dive playlists on topics like gerrymandering and money in politics that are curated from across the network. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.